Good morning. Good morning. I'm hopeful that you're awake today and ready to receive something from the Lord. It's always an honor and a privilege to stand before you as, as one of the leaders of the church and, and be able to speak about Jesus and what he is and who he is. Great for the things that are going on. I had an opportunity to send my daughter to camp and they brought her back, which was okay. Um, we weren't expecting that, but uh, um, she had a great time, and she really, for, for whatever reason, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm dead serious, my daughter really grew up this week. Yeah. She came back different. Amen. And, uh, you don't believe how that can change, because she went as a young knucklehead, She's come back, still a knucklehead, but she's grown a little bit, and seriously, it was really awesome to see her really take shape, and we're excited for the high schoolers, and we're going to this beach house, and it should be really fun, and I just believe God is doing something, especially in our kids, and I believe if you're a young at heart or feel young, whoever you are, Bill, you're in this, that today's message is going to make sense, and we still have an opportunity. Today, we're going to talk about vows. But before we get that, I want to kind of plug uh, Israel. February 2018, we're going to Israel. There's about 12 of us going, maybe 10. And uh, we'd love for you to go. It's awesome. There's a bunch of people that have gone. And everything's included except lunch. And uh, it's an awesome time, a pilgrimage going back. And the best part is you get to spend nine days with me. That's better than the first service. Nobody said anything. They all stood and looked at me like, that's the best part? Because we don't want none of that. So, uh, But if you're interested, it's an awesome pilgrimage to a great place, and you get to learn a lot of stuff, and you get to feel and walk where Jesus walked. And uh, it's really impactful. If you want to know more information, I'd love to have you join me. It'll be a trip of a lifetime. Uh, the other thing that I want to talk about is next week we're starting a really powerful three-week series. It's called Restoration. And the concept of it is there's a lot of things that we need to restore in our life. And so we're going to use some principles and some recovery techniques. And we're also going to talk about how to restore from life's problems. Divorce and death and drugs and alcohol and separation and, and issues that we have, health issues and our body growing older. All these things, you can use these principles to actually grow. You talk about financial issues. And so it's called Restoration and it's a life recovery series. I'm really excited and hopefully you'll see some awesome, amazing things. This week, uh, these next three weeks are going to be action-packed and we're going to close it out with a serve fair. It should be pretty exciting. So I want to plug that. Now today, we do come back to the finale of the Sermon on the Mount. It just remembers, I just remember June 1st and how we started this and now we're at the end and I'm like, it's gone kind of quick. But there's been some really powerful sermons preached, and we want to do that today. But today we're going to talk about something. It's, we're going to talk about at the end of our text, it says, let your yeses be yeses and your noes be no. And a lot of times in life, we don't do that anymore. But here's what I want to do. I want to get you riled up. Jeff just sang a song, Your Love Awakens Me, so I want to make sure that you're awake. And I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to respond yes or no, depending if you're willing to do that. So here's the questions, and I'll get back to these at the end because it's really the meaning of the message. Will you make Jesus a priority in your life this week? Yes. Amen. Will you allow Satan to create all kinds of chaos and confusion in your life this week? No. Amen. How about this? Will you cling to Jesus when trouble hits this week? Yes. Amen. Will you allow fear to rule your life throughout the week? No, we need to have faith in that. 
Here's the last yes. Will you speak about Jesus this week in your life somehow, some way? Yes. First service, about 12 people said that. And the truth is, I'm not looking for evangelistic concepts here. I'm just looking, hey, Jesus is working alive in my life. Tell your friends and family that God is moving. You don't have to tell them about Jesus and make them bow down before you and kiss the ring and accept it. Just talk about Jesus. Here's the last one. Will you fall into temptation of sin this week? Ooh, that's pretty normal. Everybody gets to the end going, oh, that's a lot, Jeff. That's a lot. Well, hopefully at the end of the message, that will make sense because we just made some vows before God and we need to make our yeses be yes and our noes be no. But as we conclude the Sermon on the Mount, I want to come to a place where that, you, that makes some sense to you as we close this 12-week sermon series. The first thing is, a lot of people love the Sermon on the Mount. People all over the world, even non-Christians, write books about the Sermon on the Mount because they think it's a way to live life, and that is true. But here's the issue with the Sermon on the Mount. If you've ever thought or read, who's read the Sermon on the Mount before? If you look in the actual text, you will see that there's no gospel message. The gospel is that Jesus died and rose again for your and my eternal life. There's no talk about the cross. There's no talk about none of that because Jesus is talking to a bunch of believers. So the Sermon on the Mount, unfortunately, is also not a complete gospel. Some part of the Christian religion, some of the, the, the right or left sides of Christian religion, some would say that the Sermon on the Mount's verbiage and the language in it is so strong that it's too strong that we don't really want it. We want it out of the Bible because it's almost too gross. Like Jeremy was saying, an eye for an eye, that you're going to gouge and, and do that. That's just so strong. The language is too strong for them. Others on the other side of the spectrum would say, all we need is the Sermon on the Mount. We don't need any other part of the gospel because that's where it gets a little crazy. And then if you narrow it down, it's treat others as you want to be treated. That's the golden rule. And they say that's really all you need. The point is that there's conflict here because the Sermon on the Mount is to be taught to disciples. Only people that believe. And in that, then you have an opportunity to grow. This real Sermon on the Mount is what we call a king's manifesto. The king Jesus came and he lays out his manifest of what he wants the kingdom to look like. But the beauty is, he doesn't go out and lay out, here's what I want for his kingdom, and then he goes back up to his throne. He said, let me stay down for a little while, and let me show you what to do. And if you're willing, follow me, and when I leave, let the Spirit lead you in the place so that you can understand the king's manifesto and how to live a life for the glory of God. Sound good? There's a problem, though. The Sermon on the Mount wasn't built for men and women and children to do it by themselves. Really what it was built for is for you to have a relationship with God and a relationship with the Holy Spirit and allow him to walk you through this process so that you can grow and understand and do some of those things. The questions that we talked about over the, over the summer have been really strong. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to do this alone because you can't really achieve the things on the Sermon on the, on the Mount the way that I want you to do it. So let the Spirit of Christ in you so that you can live that out. And that's what he really wants us to understand. When we look at the words and the message in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, I want to raise this law in your life to a different level. I want to raise it to that nth degree. The nth degree is not the next degree, but it's a higher level than what we are understanding. As human beings, we think, oh, I'm going to just raise it up a notch. I'm going to suit up. I'm going to tighten my boots. I'm going to do even stronger. And Jesus is saying, no, I want to change it to a spiritual level that you can't do apart from me. 
He wants us to raise the level of our hearts and soul and mind on the way that we see these things so that you and I can be in that right relationship with God. When we look at the Sermon on the Mount, just like we look at the Ten Commandments, it shows us that we are in need of a Savior. When you try and look about adultery and lust and all the things that we talked about and retaliation, apart from God, we really can't commit and do all the things that he wants us to do apart from him. He wants us to trust him and, and show us that he needs to be a part of our life. Jesus is dealing with the Mosaic or the, uh, the Law of Moses, the first part of the Bible, the Torah. And he's saying, in the Torah, these are laws that you've heard, but now I want you to take it to another level. I want you to take it to a spiritual level and quit humanizing everything that I'm writing. And so he's talking to a group of people, mainly a group like this in the room, that wants to have a spiritual relationship with God. He has said, you have heard it said, and he talked about murder and adultery and retaliation and divorce, and today we're going to talk about oaths. And he's telling the disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to wipe away all the laws. He didn't come to California and say, I'm your Lord and Savior, and now you no longer have to follow the laws of California. He says, I'm coming here to look at the laws and show you how to really see them. How do you see them, not just the letter of the law, but the spirit and truth of the law in a, in a Holy Spirit kind of manner. He wants to show you in a spiritual sense what the law looks like so that he will show you something in an entirely different manner. And that's tough for us to understand, but that's really what Jesus wants. And we've, we felt that challenge throughout the week. So today we're going to look at the spirit of the law. And before we get into it, we're going to talk about oaths and stuff. Jesus is not telling you to not make oaths. Sometimes we look at this message and we think it's about not taking oaths and making oaths. That's not what he's saying. So we'll get back to that hopefully a little bit. But I want to start with a, a story. I got a bunch of stories today to help you understand about vows and let your yeses be yeses and your noes be noes. There's a rich oil tycoon in Texas. And he's on his deathbed. He's near death. And the pastor comes in. Somebody invites a pastor. Go see my friend. He's about ready to die. The pastor comes in and, and starts talking to him about the power of God. You know, I believe in this God, and through Jesus Christ, he has power to heal you. And the guy says, wow, I like that. If he could heal me on my deathbed, that would be fantastic. And he says, yeah, that's what we believe in. We believe in a powerful God. And he says, well, if that ever happened to me, I would give $10 million to the church. And the pastor says, well, let's pray. See what happens. And so he prays. He says, and they have this moment, and, and the pastor goes away. Well, within a couple of days, he started getting better, responding. And within a couple of weeks, he gets out of the hospital, and about a month later, he's truly healed. And he's walking. About seven months go by, and the pastor and him bump into each other at Home Depot. And he goes, hey, pastor, how are you doing? He's like, wow, you look fantastic. I, I, I can't believe it. He's like, yeah, I feel great. I'm back to normal. And he says, praise God. That power of God thing that we talked about was really important. He's like, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm back to normal. And he says, well, that's interesting. He says, you know, you, you talked about it, that if, you, if the power of God worked, that you would give some money to the church. And he said, I did? And he goes, yeah, you said you would give $10 million. He goes, wow, that shows you how sick I really was. <laughs> A lot of times in life, we make those promises to God and to people around us, and we fall short with following through those vows. We do it all the time, 
And Jesus is saying, I need you to look at the spirit of what you're saying and the spirit of the law. And so that you will change and your heart will be right and God will move in a way that makes sense. That it will be radically transformational to you. So today we're going to read from our memory verse and then we're going to read into Matthew 5, 33 to um, 37. So if you're able to stand or if you'd like to stand, we stand because here's the deal. I once was lost and then I was found, but I wasn't found because I was lost in the world. Jesus found me and his word is transforming. So we're up here telling you the Bible changes lives. And when we read it and we stand it, that's why we have great reverence and fear for it. Here's the memory verse. Now Jesus, when he saw the crowd, he went up to the mountainside and he sat down. And his disciples came to him and he began to teach. Then we jump down to verse 33. It says, again, you have heard it said, it was said to our ancestors, you must not break our oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it's God's throne, or by earth, because it's its footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king, neither you should swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your word be, uh, let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than that will be from the evil one. Today, no matter how old you are, we're going to talk about vows and our yeses to be yes and our no to be no. And we're asking right now that you open up your heart to see something that God really wants to do in you. Change you from the inside out, from the heart level, a spiritual level, so that you can be the right person in your life. With your friends, your neighbors, your loved ones, with your church members. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for who you are. We ask, Lord, that you will move inside of us. That you will create a space in our heart so that we can say yes to you and no to the world. That we can make vows to you, Lord, and follow through with them. So, Lord, we open ourselves and ask for you to speak powerfully today. That you will bring us a direct revelation. That you will give us a, a sanctification moment. And that you will change us from the inside out, from the heart outward. Father, we love you and we praise you and we lift you up in the name above all names, Jesus Christ. And the congregation replied, amen. amen. Go ahead and be seated. You know, when I was growing up, I was one that really didn't tell the truth much. And I, I, it lasted a long time. 33, my wife would say 43, you know, it gets, keeps going on. The truth is important to me. But I was one that didn't really live in the truth. As a young kid, I was just that way. But here's what happened to me. I was introduced to golf at the age of 11 years old. And I want to tell a little golf story. And you don't need to know the game of golf to really understand the story. But here's the thing about golf. Golf is an honest and honorable sport. And what I mean by that is the way that you play golf is they tell you, this is how you play the game. And you call your own penalties. You tell them how much you made. Did I make a par? Did I make an eight? Did I make a 10? You have to tell them and you write it down. And it's kind of this honor system that you call out your own penalties. Well, when I started to play this game, I made a decision early on that when I was talking to the PGA pro, I said, yes, I'm going to play this game the way it's supposed to be played. Honest and upright. And it really changed the way that I play. Still today, I play the game of golf, and I still play it the right way. 
But there's all kinds of rules in golf. Like there's a, a place where they call it the sand trap and you can't touch the sand with your club or it's a stroke penalty. Or there's places where you're in a hazard and if you just touch a small blade of grass in the hazard, it, you have to call a penalty on yourself even if nobody else sees it. Well, there's a story about this guy named Jim Furyk a couple of years ago, and it's called the Heritage Classic. It's a, it's a golf tournament. And on the 18th hole, both these guys were neck and neck, and this, sto this, this story radically changed Jim Furyk's life. He's won multiple golf tournaments. But what happened was this guy named Byron Davis was playing, and he moved over to an area where he was in a hazard, and as he was taking a practice swing, he touched a small blade of grass. He came up, hit the ball, got it close, and they were still tied, and he went and told the official, you know what, I touched a blade of grass. And the official said, what? He goes, yeah, I got to call a two-stroke penalty on myself. He ended up losing the match and probably walked away from three or $400,000. Now, at the end of the tournament, all the family and kids run up and hug and kiss, congratulations. And Jim Furyk said to his kids, don't do that this time. Because the guy that needs to be honored is Byron Davis because he's steadfast to the rules of golf. And he called a penalty on himself and lost, took second place because that was the right thing to do. This is what Christianity is in our life. We call our own fouls. We call our own penalties. We call out our own sins and our own failures and say, this is where I'm at and this is how I change my life. You can't wait for me to call you, call you out. I will. It's awkward. You've got to call your own stuff. And when you do that and you start to have truth and honor and integrity, you start to grow in your faith. And that's what we want to have. Golf, I believe, is a life-changing sport. Christianity has this same concept. When you do things in the quiet of the night by yourself, you need to call that out. And say, this is where I'm struggling. Lord, forgive me and let me be in a, in a right relationship with you. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to get us to, is to the truth. In this place, he wants us to live in truth. As young and old and newborns, he wants us to live in truth. Our culture is walking away from truth. Our culture is walking away from truth and trust. It's almost non-existent. We have no trust with other people. Do you realize 50 or 60 years ago, we could walk into a grocery store or a furniture store or even a car place and say, hey, I need a car. And they'd like, okay, Bob, here's a car and sign your name. Where do you live? And they would pretty much give it on your word. Me and my father-in-law yesterday were talking about it, and I won't tell you his age, but it's way over 80. <laughs> Sorry, Notch. It's not way over 80. It's middle of the road. Anyways. We were talking, and I said, I told my, my father, we call him Nacho, his name's Ray, who said, when did the credit, the store credit thing in? He says around the 50s or 60s. And I don't know if you guys realize this, but if you go back in history, when the Ten Commandments and the prayer were left to school, we started walking away from truth and trust in other human beings. That's about the same time it started to change. That was 62, 63. And that's when everything starts to change. We don't have trust in this world anymore. We struggle with people. There's no more store credit. Today, you go in and you want to get something, and it's like, let me get my lawyer, let me get my notary, let me get the contract, and there's all kinds of fine print, right? I've never read fine print in my whole life. I just like, oh, okay, I hope this works out for me. <laughs> Nine times out of ten, it's a bad deal. So 
But today we don't have that. We've walked away from it because there's no trust and there's no truth. We don't have that anymore. After thousands of years of saying, I am going to vow this to you, Stephen. Here's my sandal or here's my word or spit on the hands and we shake. That vow is gone. Now it's about legal, lawyer, contract, fine print. You're not worth any of my time. Just pay me the money. In a short amount of time, our whole history has changed. Because we don't have words and vows are no longer important because we're walking away from truth. There's a guy named George Barna, and he writes research, and it's definitely for Christian stuff, and pastors use it all the time. And he found out uh, about in 2010 that 22% of Americans believe there's such a thing as absolute moral truth. Now, I've said this before, and I don't get any royalty by you reading the Bible at all. I wish I did. Probably wouldn't make much money, but I wish I did. But there was a decision in my life. One day I made a decision on my knees that I was going to take the word of God and I was going to make it my moral truth. It was going to be my true north in life. Everything else was going to revolve around that. When I made that decision, about 50% of the stuff in here, I didn't agree with and I didn't even understand. Today it's grown to about 92% of the stuff I truly am into. And there's still some stuff that I waver on because it's harsh words. But that doesn't mean I don't make it my true north. It's just a list of, okay, Jesus, explain this one, because this one seems a little harsh today. But this is my true north, and we have walked away from true north, and what I'm challenging you is to bring it back. Now, here's the real kicker. This is why I'm trying to get to this point about truth. Here's the real quick kicker. George took out of that 22%, those that say they were Christians out of that 22%, he measured, and he says, how many of the Christians in that 22% uh, believe in a moral truth that comes from the Bible. Does anybody know what the number would be? Yes. Four? Four percent? That's really low. But that's sad. Here's what it says. George Barna came up out of all the Christians that said there's a moral truth. 32% of Christians said that his moral truth was absolute. That means those Christians that say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, I listen to a Sunday sermon on a regular basis preached out of the Bible, I believe that he died and rose again, those born-again Christians, 32% of them said that there's a real absolute moral truth. So something's wrong in our churches and something's wrong in our world because we don't even believe that. And that's a trouble. And that's why we're struggling in this world with our vows and our truth because we don't have any. We don't have it in the church, we don't have it in our relationships at home, and we don't have it at work. It's all about something beyond that. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is saying, I need to preach to you on a heart matter about your word. Your word has to be important and strong in the way that you live. We've walked away after thousands of years of vows, we no longer have it. And it's scary. Here's the worst part, teenagers... Out of that, 9% of the teenagers in the world or in the United States believe that there's a moral truth. 9%. Where do you think our, our country's going? It's wrong. It's a struggle. Let me give you a moral truth today, and I'll get to the, I'll get to the words in just a second. Let me, let, me, let me get to a moral truth. Yesterday's events was evil. I'm going to call it for what it is. It was evil that happened in Virginia yesterday. Straight up evil, but what are we to do with that? Here's what the Bible says. Here's the moral truth on how we respond to evil as Christians. Now, maybe you like this, maybe you don't, but this is what the Word of God says, and it comes in Romans chapter 12, verse 21. Here's what we do when evil exists. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
That's what we do as we respond to heinous, crazy, racist acts in this world. We don't become overcome by it, and we don't make rash, irrational decisions. What we do as Christians is we stand on the word and say, somehow, some way, I'm going to do good, and I'm going to be the hands and feet of Jesus here. And if we're not in Virginia, we can pray and intercede, and we can tell people that Jesus is alive and real, and we'll pray for that lady and her family that lost their life. That's how we work, and that's how we move. We don't do evil with evil. We overcome it with good. And I think that's really the heart of where Jesus is today. He's challenging our words and our vows. So let's look at it. There's really three topics here that I want to talk about. Really, the first one really quick is Jesus is examining the practice of vows. He's looking at it and saying there's all kinds of history in the church or in, in the world about vows, especially with the Israelites. There's so many scriptures. I stopped counting after 50 of these verses in the Bible that talked about vows and, and swearing to, on vows and on the Bible. And here's what it says. You must not break your oath and you must, not keep, and you must keep your oath to the Lord. It says, you have heard it said long ago. And now he's saying, here's what you need to learn. That your oaths are actually something that is binding. It's a, it's a contract between you and God. And that's where he's challenging us. And he's going back and saying, now let's look at this. Now how do we examine this if this is true? We go back into the Mosaic law or the law of Moses, which is in the beginning of the Bible. And we look at the words that Jesus is communicating. Now the words aren't exact, but they're the same concept. Here's what we see. In the Levitical law, in Leviticus chapter 19, listen to what it says. Do not swear falsely by my name, that would be the Lord, and so, pro and so profane the name of your God. And he stamps it with his signature, I am the Lord. He says, don't go into this world and start swearing falsely and then profane my name and make it look ridiculous. I am the Lord God. He's saying, I want you to stand up and rise up and do what you say you're going to do. Don't go into this world and make these false accusations and false vows. That's no way to live. Jesus is referring back to that. In this next chapter, in Numbers chapter 30, verse 2, it says, a man who makes a vow to the Lord or makes a pledge under oath must never break it. If you've ever made a vow or a pledge to God, like the rich tycoon, you're to pay up. You said 10 million, you got to give 10 million, you know, unless you don't have it, then you're a liar anyway. So, but he's saying he must do exactly what he said to do. A lot of times we've stopped doing this. We've stopped doing exactly what we said we're going to do. And the follow-through and the vows really don't make sense. That's why we limit and lack trust in this world. Deuteronomy 23, 21 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, don't be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will certainly be guilty of sin. How often do you say, oh, God, this year I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the Bible head to, uh, cover to cover. Man, it's going to be a good year, and it's now August, and I'm like, oh, I'm still in Genesis 3. <laughs> well, I guess I'll start next year and just put the Bible down again. Or how much have we said, Lord, I'm going to make this vow that I'm going to change. I'm no longer going to walk in the ways that are different from the ways of you. I'm not going to live a, a, a worldly life from Monday to Saturday. I'm going to try and live every day for you. And then Monday comes, and you're like, oh. It's football, or it's baseball, or I'm going to go do my old thing, and maybe next week. We make these vows, and he says, if you really say it, 
do the work and pay it the way it is, or it's actually creating a sin. We make all kinds of vows at church all the time. We sing these songs. Do we really believe it, or is it just like, well, I'm clapping because the person next to me is really excited about it? These are vows that we're making, and God's saying, make sure you aren't slow to pay them back. Do it today. What are you waiting for? God's purpose for these laws was to bridle or rein in man's sinful ways, man's sinful desire to lie. Our tendency in our heart is to lie. And so we need some sort of bridle so that we can be steered away from lies and into the truth. And that bridle usually doesn't come from man. It comes from the Holy Spirit, and it comes from looking at the Bible and believing in it and starting to refine yourself from the Word of God. The other thing that God wants with these these promises in the Old Testament was for us to stop making foolish promises to small things. There's one thing to make a great vow. You get married and you make these powerful vows and you say, oh, God, help us, and you, you make those vows. But we started making these foolish vows I promise I'm going to be there tomorrow on my mother's grave. My mother's grave, right? Those are vows that are ridiculous, and that's what Jesus is saying. These vows, these things that we do don't make sense to this world. We have a problem, and here's what Jesus is trying to communicate all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We have a heart problem, a heart condition. It's sick, it's ill, and it's been riddled with sin. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can understand that? Who can understand that our heart is sick? And Jesus says, listen, I'm giving you all these words in the the Sermon on the Mount, but really what I'm trying to do is give you a heart change so that you can see it in a new set of glasses, a, a, a set of godly glasses the way Jesus would see it. So that you can make these changes, and once you change from the inside out, it, no matter, it doesn't matter to what you look like. It's the matter how you feel and how you act. Not repaying evil with evil, but evil with good. That's the heart thing that Jesus wants us to see. So we've examined the vow. We've looked at, back at Moses and the way that Moses sees this. And now we need to look at the issue that Jesus is really trying to communicate. What happens is, in the world of religion... There becomes this legalistic thing that happens. In Christianity, we call it the spirit of religiosity. In, uh, in, in the days of Christ, there was this group called the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were a group of people about 150 years before Jesus. They started this uh, Jewish sect that was really going to just focus on the laws. They were going to focus and do all the things of the law and make their outward appearance look like they were so godly by the way that they did the legalistic thing. Today, we try and do that in Christianity as well. We come to church with our Bible. We hold our Bible and we walk around. I got my sword. I haven't opened it up in three weeks or three months. or It only got wear because I wear it every day. And then it's got coffee marks on it because that's where I put my Starbucks. But we walk and look righteous. And we don't really ever do anything with it. And that's what the legalistic things of the Pharisee. The oath of verse, uh, the, the practice of oaths and that Jesus is communicating in verse 33 is biblical. It seems very biblical. The words are different in the Old Testament, but it's exactly what Jesus is communicating. The problem is the legalistic view had very, uh, very huge flaws, and it was short of what Jesus was trying to communicate or what God was trying to communicate in the Old Testament. 
there was flaws and issues in the way that we looked at it. Jesus, uh, the God was trying to teach us something, and the focus of man was to do it by the, 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 the actual essence of the law and not the spirit of the law. You know, in the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court's job in our country is to actually look at something, not just with but the letter of the law, but also the spirit of the law. So they look at it in multiple different ways, and you have multiple people looking at it, so it's got this full, rounded view of what the actual spirit of the law is, not just the letter of the law. We have, in Jesus Christ, the ultimate Supreme Court justice that's challenging us to look at things in a bigger, bolder, more powerful, more impactful, more heartfelt kind of way. Don't look at the letters and allow the letters to be the only thing that you do. Look at the way that you're feeling about it and the way that Christ wants you to understand it. The Pharisees were concerned about the letter of the law. Christians sometimes get focused on the letter of the law. And Jesus is saying, I want you to open up your heart and look at the spirit of what I'm trying to tell you. The way that your heart should be about this issue. And we saw it in murder and retaliation and the B attitudes. The B attitudes is to have the attitude. It's not have attitude. It's be this attitude. And it's the same what Jesus wants in some of these other things. We need to do this uh, Place by place. We need to do this verse by verse. So the last part of this is then to not make frivolous um, oaths. We make these frivolous oaths. I promise, honey, I'll be home on time. You know, God willing, right? That's funny because I'm sometimes late. So um, when I make these claims and these things, we, we, we actually are missing out on what God really wants. Say what you're going to do and do what you're going to say and stop making frivolous, meaningless oaths in the world. Our yeses be yes and our noes be no. That's what 34 uh, says. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all by either, uh, either by heaven because it's God's throne or by earth because it's his footstool or by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by the head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your word yes be yes and no be no. Anything more than that is from the evil one. We are not to swear by these things. What is he saying here? I swear by the heavens that I will be there and I will do this and I will pay you back. I swear by the earth that I promise that I will be there and I will do these things and I will complete your construction project. I swear by Jerusalem that I will be a part of your plan and I will be there when you need me. Jesus is saying those compliment or those those swearing mean nothing. Because he is sovereign above heaven, he's sovereign above Jerusalem, and he is sovereign above the earth. He says, if you're going to swear, swear to God. Not swear at God, but put God first and make him part of that plan. God is sovereign over all things, and Jesus is challenging us. Let your yeses be yeses, and your noes be no, and don't put anything next to it. Just learn to live out your yes and no. Say what you mean and mean what you say. You know, 10 years ago, I, I was about a year into ministry, and I, I hadn't had my pastor's license yet, and maybe it was 11 years ago, and um, I was running into some conflicts at church, and here was the conflict. The pastor pulled me in, his name Ed Genowine at Crossroads, and he pulled me in, and he says, Jeff, you're doing a great job, the facility looks good, I was kind of the janitor, and I was also doing the missions, he goes, everybody is excited about what God is doing in your life, but here's the problem. A lot of people are also upset with you because you're missing appointments and you're overcommitting and you're underperforming. And he says, if you want to be in ministry, Jeff, 
Your word has to be everything. And he goes, and you're failing on a huge level. So all these people that really love you over time are going to start to get angry and disgruntled with you because your word is not true. And it really changed me. And here's the interesting thing. About the same time, I had one of my best friends. His name's Richard. And uh, we call him Farmer Richard at the church. And uh, me and him were kind of having some issues in our relationship. And I was telling him what happened at the church. And he said, Jeff, I have the same problem with you. You say you're going to be somewhere and you rarely show up. Your word isn't very good. And he says, I don't really want to be in this kind of relationship. I'll still be your friend, but I'm not going to make any plans with you. And then he brought out his dusty Bible. And he wasn't a Christian at the time. He is today. And he brought out his Bible and he puts off the dust. And he says, I looked up this verse last night for you. And it was this. Let your yeses be yeses and your noes be no. Here's what James says when we read it. This was the verse that he read to me. He says, above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear by heaven or earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. My relationship that day with him changed. My relationship with people at the church changed. And truly, I became a better pastor or a future pastor because of that. Because my yeses mean something and so do my noes. And here's the end point. I, had a tr- I struggled to say no to people. I could say yes all the time. Yes, I can meet you. Yes, I can meet you. Yes, I can meet you. And then next thing you know, I'm triple booked on Tuesday, right? Not just one time, three times triple booked. Now I have to say no because I know no is a good thing and sometimes no needs to be said. And that's what God taught me. I want to tell one more story before we get to the end in the vows, and it's about Abraham Lincoln. And uh, my buddy Greg, he was in the second service. He just got engaged to Jeremy's sister, Madison, a big part of the church. And this story really reminds me of Greg. And yes. It's awesome to see those two. But here's a story about Abraham Lincoln and and how it really uh, makes sense for us to make vows. Abraham Lincoln was at a cocktail party once, and he was a member of Congress. He wasn't the president. And he was being criticized by one of his friends. He was being criticized by his friend because there was all kinds of rare and um, unique wines there, and he was rejecting them. And he was basically insulting the host. And his friend says to Abraham Lincoln, he says, there is certainly no danger of a man of your years and of your habits becoming addicted to wine. He's basically saying, Abe, we know who you are. A couple sips of wine is not going to really change your life. You're this honest Abe kind of guy. It's not an issue. And he goes, I'm not saying this to be disrespectful. It's like these people have brought this stuff out. We should probably partake in it. And Abe Lincoln answers, John, I promised my precious mother only a few days before she died that I would never use any intoxicating beverage. And I consider that promise to be binding today as the day that I gave it. On her deathbed, she asked him never to drink because she knew how drinking affected her. And here she is, and she said that. And Abe says, I said that, and I still mean it several years later. But here's the thing. John didn't give up. Here's what else he said. But his friend continued, there's a difference between a child surrounded by a rough class of drinkers and a man in the home of refinement, a man in the, in the home of such quality people of politicians, right? He's saying, it's okay to have a rough group of people with a child. You shouldn't do that, but we're in a bunch of refined politicians. You should be drinking. And here's what he said, and I have it up on the, stage, the thing. He says, a promise is a promise forever. And when you make it to your mother, it's doubly binding. 
That's the power. That's the power of a promise. It goes beyond the grave. And that's what we have in Jesus. We have this double or triple or quadruple binding power of God. And when we make vows to him and our yeses to him and our noes to him, we need to make it who we really are. And it goes beyond the grave. And it wakens us so that we can be whole and right with God. What you guys said at the beginning of the sermon that you shouted yes and no to, those are promises and they're up on stage so that you can understand them and write them down. The promise said that you will make Jesus a priority this week. If you do that every week, your life will be transformed. You said yes to that. Make that vow and make it true. You said you're not going to let Satan create chaos. That is true. You said no. Let that be part of your life every week. Not just this week, but every week, and I promise your life will change. You said you would cling to Jesus through the tough times. If you really do that, you watch, and he will transform your sorrow and pain into joy because a new day is, is coming. If you allow fear to rule your life, you'll never be a faithful person. You said no to fear, and you're saying yes to faith. And the thing you said, am I willing to talk about Jesus during the week? You need to say yes to that because he's done something amazing in your life. Why are you afraid and holding it in? And about temptation, you said you're not going to fall to sin's temptation. If you take these promises every week and write them down and make them part of your life, your life will elevate into a spiritual level that people around you will be blown away. What's different? Why are you uh, uh, radiant? Why are you powerful in the way that you're living your life that people will see? It's not because of me. It's because of Jesus. His testimony is the thing that raises us up. Let your yeses be yes and your noes be no. Let's just get into a moment of prayer. Father, I, I ask right now for all the times that we've said yes to you and we've failed, forgive us, Father. For all the vows that we've made and we've not paid out in full to you, Father, forgive us for, for what we've done. Forgive us for our missteps and our misunderstanding of the law. And I ask for a heart change, Lord. You heard us say yes and no to things, and I pray these will become the mantra of our heart as we live as Christians. As we close this sermon series of Sermon on the Mount, Lord, we walk out of here saying yes to you and no to the world and no to the this, this Satan. Father, if there's someone here that needs to say yes to Jesus, maybe for the first time, and no more of this world, you have an opportunity to, uh, to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You say a simple prayer, and you become part of this great kingdom. If that's you today, I'd love to give you the opportunity. Repeat after me if you feel God calling you. Say, Father, forgive me. Come into my heart. Come into my soul. I say yes to you. I understand that you died and you rose again for me. And I thank you for that, Lord, for my eternal life. I ask that you uh, anoint me with your Holy Spirit so that I can say yes to you and no to the world every day for the rest of my life. Father, we claim you above all things and ask for your will to be done because you are good and you are the name above all names. Amen.